0: Well, howdy there, Internet people. It's Bo again, and tonight we've got an interesting conversation. Uh, We've got Shahid Buttar here, and if you're not familiar, this is uh, the guy who's taking on Nancy Pelosi in the primary. So we're going to get to hear about uh, Pelosi getting primaried by someone who is kind of actually on the left for once um so why did you start to do this well what, i mean when you're jumping into politics and you're going after pelosi to start off that's i mean you, you picked a big mountain to start with there
1: <laughs> <laughs> i did yeah I, I say to people that i don't have political aspirations i just have very deep political frustrations and i'm tired of being misrepresented in washington basically it's that simple i live in a city where the United Nations was founded, and our voice in Washington facilitates human rights abuses. I live in a city that's dedicated to global peace and justice, and our voice in Washington funds every war that's ever been proposed during the time that she's represented our city in, in D.C., and we're a city that's committed, for instance, our board of supervisors unanimously supports universal health care. But our voice in Washington refuses. And so I'm running to liberate our city's voice in Congress to make sure that San Francisco can finally get a voice aligned with our city to inform the federal policy process.
0: All right. OK, so we've been talking a lot on my channel. Are you a social Democrat, a Democratic socialist? A, what, what, what are you?
1: <laughs> I'm way left of where we're at now, and I'm eager to push it as far as it can go. My first act of academic scholarship 20 years ago, I wrote a thesis that got me into Stanford Law School about how to effectuate, through trust and estates reform, radical wealth redistribution through a market economy, which is to say, carving new ground in this uh, construction of of what does the future look like. I'm also, separate from that agenda, very eager to, for instance, nationalize weapons manufacturers, fossil fuel extraction companies, resource extraction companies generally to make sure that profit does not inhere in plunder. So that's, you know, well to the left of what the established system is. I'm also, though, I, I make a strong point about the D back in Democratic Socialists. I'm very grateful for the endorsement of Democratic Socialists of America and San Francisco. And, you know, what that means is that I'm particularly concerned about the intersection of surveillance, keeping our neighbors silent and preventing them from being able to raise their voices about whatever might matter to them. Executive secrecy keeping Congress and the courts in the dark, threats to voting rights that prevent us from even having control over our process. And 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 then then finally the loss of the independence of the courts. And I have ideas and solutions in each of those four vectors. So as an immigrant to the United States, you know, I was brought to this country to be free. I was two years old when my family came here. I grew up in rural Missouri and I got out of the south side of Chicago to study and then teach law at Stanford. And during the twenty years that I've been fighting for civil rights in the, the United States. I have witnessed the rise of bipartisan fascism, and it is the unfortunate, sad, and unacceptable complicity of the corporate Democratic Party in all of these different dimensions of authoritarianism that ultimately forced my hand in into the race. You know, I I, I can't watch this go down from the sidelines, knowing too well how Pelosi actually operates in Washington.
0: I may have to eat my words here because I. Recently, just said we don't have any actual leftists running. Um, <laughs> okay, so you you talked about you uh, you you uh, fought for civil rights. Now that was with Electronic uh, Frontier. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and and before that, you know, uh, at EFF, my work was particularly around surveillance and net neutrality, uh, the right to encryption, the right to repair. Fifteen years before that, I was an early advocate for marriage equality. And that was when I was in private practice working at a law firm, and I was representing the second mayor in the country to recognize the rights of my neighbors to marry a partner of their choice. I've fought for civil rights across a few different contexts, also immigrant rights, um, civil rights in the face of police persecution and predation. That's a spectrum a of it.
0: Um, so we got to ask the one question, how, how are you going to beat Pelosi? That's, that's what I want to know. <laughs> It's the
1: million dollar question, you know so to, to this point, we have our foot in the door. I'm in the general election. So we have a top two primary system in California, and I won second place last week. So we now have the chance to face off one in one, one uh, on one against her in November. and I'll be the first challenger that she's faced in a general election from within the Democratic Party in the 30 years that she's been in Congress. And you know our campaign is very much built on the premise that San Francisco, stands very well to her left. At the moment, the city remains relatively uninformed about how Pelosi shows up in Congress. She still has a reputation of being a lion of the left, even though she supports Trump's trade policy, and even though she supports Trump's foreign policy, and even though she supports Trump's fiscal austerity rules and slow walked and then limited an impeachment process that failed, even though we could have won it. You know, a a lot of people still think of Pelosi because they see her on MSNBC tearing up speeches and shady clapping and pointing across a table and putting on her sunglasses as she's sternly walking out of a meeting. We're basically running to to deconstruct the myth of the photo ops. And this really comes down to just knocking on doors. We've got an army of volunteers, literally hundreds, just in the Bay Area, thousands across the country. And between uh, my neighbors and allies who are pounding pavement and knocking on the doors with me and our neighbors who are organizing phone banks, in their various cities around the country, we've had about a half dozen happen so far from Los Angeles to New York. And anybody who wants to get Pelosi out of office and liberate San Francisco's voice in Congress or alternatively end the corporate control of the Democratic Party is welcome to jump in. Uh, the volunteer invitation is open to anybody, and uh, folks can go on our website, shahidforchange.us, to, uh, to learn more and to volunteer. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah, she she does. She has a reputation, and as you know, it's funny because we talk about it on our channel. You know, it's the line of the left, yeah, but she's not left. She, she's oh. she's she's center right, you know, um, and there there's a large part of the Democratic Party that's cool with that. I don't know that there's a large part of San Francisco that's cool with that. So, I mean, if if you're going to do it, you, you pick the right place to do it. Um, and you know, there, there's a whole lot of people going after, uh, the establishment Dems right now. And I just, are y'all talking to each other at all or yeah. Yeah. And there's been a lot of endorsements. you know, I've,
1: I've endorsed for instance, Lauren Ashcraft and, uh, Isaiah James in New York. Uh, endorsed Heidi Sloan uh, in Texas, and Jessica Cisneros, who unfortunately lost her challenge to Henry Cuellar, largely because Nancy Pelosi insisted on supporting the most conservative Democrat in the House, an anti-choice, anti, frankly, worker uh, Democrat, and, and, and helped him defeat a progressive woman lawyer of color who was running on the civil rights platform, Vision of the Future, to expand the squad. Pelosi continues to kick down the stairs. And so, you know, the, the alliance among us that's emerging is part of the reason why, I frankly, I'm running for the seat. I see the person that I'm confronting as playing a particularly crucial role in consolidating not just corporate rule. And we can see how that inflects everything from predatory health care at a time when we needed to be free in order to deal sensibly with the global pandemic, to Wars for profit and plunder abroad that she funds and facilitates at every opportunity. She consistently puts corporations before her constituents. And at the end of the day, I think that the voice not just of San Francisco, but I think the rest of the country is aligned in wanting the United States to join the rest of the industrialized world and making sure that we don't kick our sick and ill neighbors into the street just because they can't pay for the doctor, making sure that your grandkids have a shot at a livable viable future a chance not just to survive but hopefully to thrive and that's the op- that's the kind of opportunity that not just republicans but corporate democrats too have been frankly assaulting for decades and i thankfully don't have children but i have nephews and nieces and i have friends with kids and supporters with kids and i'm i'm here to defend them and the future uh from the failures of our predatory corporate past represented principally by Nancy Pelosi
0: wow. okay so when it comes to, we, we've definitely got a good overview of, of your platform here. Um, when it comes to specifics, uh, Medicare for All, what just blanket support for it? Where, where where, are we at on that?
1: Absolutely blanket support. The way I describe it and the way I present it in San Francisco is is the intersectional benefits that it will offer. People think of it through the lens of, you know, how much do I want to pay for my corporate health insurance plan with the high deductible and all these you know, exclusions and there's limitations of what doctors that I can see versus a Medicare for all framework where you can choose your own doctor, you can get the preventive care that you need. The medicines are very low cost, you know, under Bernie's plan, they're capped at, you know, under $250 a year per person. That's a plan I endorse. I particularly though present it to San Franciscans as a solution, or at least one among many to our homelessness crisis. People forget that the leading cause of homelessness, and this is preposterous, is medical bankruptcy. And and it is morally bankrupt that medical bankruptcy plays such a prominent role in driving homelessness. Um, And I think there's a a very visible crisis in San Francisco with respect to our failure to provide housing to all of our residents. And I think Medicare for all would not only improve our public health outcomes, dramatically drive down the costs, relieve the burden facing sick and ill patients and their families, and it would keep people in their homes. And I think that's really, really important at a time like this. I, I, I especially think it's crucial in the context of the coronavirus, because the only way to prevent contagion is to make sure that everybody can get tested. And the fact that there are people who are not being tested because they can't afford to get the test, is it's not just foolish. It is literally self-spiteful and defeating. We are inviting a pandemic because we're too stupid to allow people to get access to the care and the resources, not just that they need, but that we need each other to have. We all share a need for each other to have access to care. And the fact that we resign care to predatory health insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies that practice arbitrary pricing is just a signal that we're, we're too willing to put profit before people and corporations before communities. I think this is a signature issue for the left and the future. And frankly, we need it in order to allow working Americans the opportunity uh, to simply survive in in the current economy. All right. And Green New Deal? I'm super into the Green New Deal the way I present it in San Francisco. around climate resiliency projects enabled by the Federal Jobs Guarantee. So one of our principal challenges in California writ large, uh, not just San Francisco, but particularly across Northern California, are the wildfires that have with increasing frequency, devastated our state each of the last several years, particularly in the fall when uh, the, the forests are drying out, we have high wind season, uh, and it's it's very prone to, to devastating wildfires, which have cost billions of dollars and dozens of lives over the last few years alone, largely due to the malfeasance and negligence of a private utility company. I'd also like to nationalize utility companies to make sure that they're doing what they need to do to put safety before profits. Uh, but beyond that, opportunity for prevention, one of the things the Green New Deal could mean in California is the employment of a generation of young people to basically replicate the kind of traditional forest management techniques that were practiced by indigenous Americans before the genocide. And that's a high labor, uh, low, it's you know, the, the Green New Jobs, federal jobs guarantee will have a minimum wage. And I'm hoping to peg that at least at $15 an hour. But without that jobs guarantee, this is low wage work. That's why the market hasn't been able to do it. And because we've resigned uh, so much of what need to be collectively shared responsibilities to the market, you know, the construction of affordable housing, for instance, it just doesn't happen. And that's why I want a Green New Deal for, for housing to ensure that we have publicly owned social housing owned by the people, managed by communities, accountable to the residents. Um, these are opportunities for us to pool our resources to defray the challenges that individuals and, and, and our families confront alone. We in this day and age, I think so many Americans are, are are staggering under the brunt of predatory healthcare, if not for themselves and for their kids or their ailing parents. Everybody gets sick eventually. And, and it's senseless that we use it as an opportunity for corporate extraction. Uh, I'd much rather see us as a civilization and a society shoots to put ourselves and each other first. And, and that's the Green New Deal represents that, not just with respect to each other, but also the future generations that don't have a chance to even raise their voices at the moment. Uh, If I may, this is a bit of a, uh, it's not exactly a digression, but just a tangent. When people talk about the Green New Deal, obviously one of the things we're concerned about is climate justice. And for me, just to demonstrate another intersection that gets often overlooked, one of the reasons I care so deeply about civil liberties and the right to dissent is particularly because of how it's been impacted or how it has impacted climate justice and energy policy. A lot of Americans don't realize that the constitutional crisis when we started jailing dissidents as terrorists, that didn't happen after the 9/11 attacks. That started in the 90s under Clinton. Frankly, it started back in the 50s, you know, during the McCarthy era, but un- even under Clinton Americans were being jailed, convicted of terror offenses for environmentally motivated vandalism. So we had a radical earth rights movement in the 90s. In the united states that was criminalized driven abroad and driven underground and i wonder how much different might our energy policy be and our climate policy be and how much less severe might the climate crisis be if we listened to the generation of environmental activists who were warning us 30 years ago that we were racing humanity off a cliff instead of vilifying them and criminalizing them i see that dynamic replicated in lots of different ways we need to protect dissent not just To guard our rights, but also to enable sensible policy decisions that never happen otherwise, because in this scenario, we've locked up the dissidents and we've given corporations the keys to the castle.
0: All right. Okay. Um, What about immigration?
1: I am an immigrant myself, and so I'm very committed to immigrant rights. I see the Trump administration readying an attack on naturalized citizens, which hits very close to home because I am one. The president wants to strip me of my citizenship. And I want to make this clear. I am a more loyal and faithful American than our criminal president has ever been and ever will be. And that's true for millions of us immigrants who are dedicated to the principles of our constitution and our country. And we don't need a racist billionaire to make it great again what we need in order to make it great again are opportunities for working families to lead viable lives without being preyed upon by predatory police uh, or private utility companies that put our communities at risk. Um, with respect to immigration, the, the need to allow labor to migrate, we could justify it even in strictly neoliberal terms if we wanted to. Right, Capital flows liberally and that helps markets. Yes, this week is uh, an interesting study in what helps markets. <laughs> You see that can drive them to the floor. Uh, But liberalizing my labor migration flows also serves the economy, even if we don't view it through the liberatory socialist lens that says people have a human right to, for instance, be with their family or alternatively escape violence or alternatively escape climate chaos. A lot of folks don't realize that the refugees on our southern border, they're being driven by a drought which is itself inextricably related to the climate crisis it's partly it's in a big way our fault and you know it's it's not like we're you know passive observers as these people are washing up on our shores we've destabilized the places that they're come that they're that they're coming from often with violence and encouraging paramilitary uh, assaults on the rights of communities and we have you know an important thing to remember with respect to immigration there is we fought a world war to establish an international right to asylum. If you fear where you live, the international community, our planet, our species has decided you have a right to flee and anywhere has an obligation to accept you, to at least give you a chance to say why you have a right to be there. And we didn't lose that right to the Nazis. We didn't lose that right in a war. We lost that right to Donald Trump and the deference of corporate Democrats who have endorsed His border militarization, more recently shutting it down entirely. The detention camps that Trump proposed, that Pelosi funded, in which thousands of people are being illegally held when they have a right to be in the United States seeking asylum through a legal process. Um, and, And maybe to close the loop there, I see the attacks on immigrant rights as precursors to attacks on the rights of all Americans. We are canaries in a constitutional coal mine. And a lot of Americans have come to fear fascism in the last four years. I've been fighting fascism in the United States since 2001. And I've recognized it in those terms. And as an immigrant Muslim, I have a lot of skin in the game. And in the very same fights that Pelosi has been unwilling to have, the places where she's been all too willing to go along, to get along, I want to put someone like Barbara Lee, who who has voted against the Patriot Act, who did vote against the war in Iraq, votes where Pelosi failed. Ah, uh, where she went along with the executive branch. I want to put a real congressional leader like Barbara Lee in the speaker's seat and get her the gavel, and that's going to require removing Nancy
0: Pelosi. All right. So let's see. What's another hot button one? The Second Amendment, guns. Okay, that's how a fun. does San Francisco feel about that? <laughs>
1: So the city is very committed to sensible restrictions to ensure the safety of our communities. Background checks are, you know, a bare bones example. I would like to see limits on assault style weapons. And there's a, I have a, uh, an analysis here. I wrote a, uh, an article some time ago, Ferguson and the Second Amendment, that attempts to, to some extent, bridge the gap between traditional left and right analyses of the Second Amendment. So you have conservatives who will often say, you know, the Second Amendment is our right to bear weapons, and without having weapons, we're not free. And you have liberals who say, that's insane. We live in communities and people die every day at the hands of each other. And it's the guns that are killing us. So can we just get these off the streets and we can all live, please? And one of the historical evolutions that people overlook in this debate is the rise of paramilitary police. So I would suggest that the Second Amendment is not about the right to bear arms at all. That's what the text says. But when the Constitution was being written, the right to bear arms, the reason it's there, what is the purpose of the right to bear arms? The purpose in the constitutional design was an escape hatch. The First Amendment are a right to escalating series of opportunities to participate in a political process. The right to your own beliefs, the right to write about them, the right to publish, to gather people, to petition the government. The Second Amendment is the escape hatch. If all else fails and and tyranny emerges we have the right to resist it. That's what the Second Amendment is, is a right to resist tyranny. What foreclosed that? The emergence of paramilitary police. The militarization of police in the United States renders the right to bear arms disconnected from the right to resist because you can't resist a country that is militarily occupied in every community. That's what we are living under today. Militarized police basically occupy every urban center across the United States and resistance through arms is entirely untenable. And so when second amendment enthusiasts and conservatives say our right to bear arms keeps us safe they forget that your right to bear arms doesn't do anything of the sort anymore. And and as an example I just cite, you know there are all these vets who come home who you know many of them can't get access to services, you know, a lot of them, you know, that have struggle with housing. There have been any number of cases of vets who've been targeted for assault, uh, like SWAT raids, particularly because they might be involved in something illicit. And, and they're highly trained people. And usually a couple members of the SWAT teams end up, you know, injured or dead. And, and so does the person that they go after, because no single person can resist a SWAT team. It's just, it, it, it's impossible, right? When you have a lot of highly trained people, only organized resistance can combat it. And unless, and I'll be honest with you here. I do think occasionally about the, and I do fear, and the FBI has investigated and frankly gone very soft on the armed and organized right-wing militias uh, that that frankly are the only locus of possible resistance to militarized police. Um, but the right to bear arms, I think people misconstrue what it means. I, I like to take it back to the right to resistance. In my mind, what the Second Amendment means today is a right to hack the government, to exfiltrate information that is kept from us illegally. And unconstitutionally, illegitimately, we, the people, are sovereign. The Second Amendment right to resistance in the information age is a right to hacking, and I'm very eager to defend that and vindicate that principle going forward.
0: Wow. All right. (laughs) Wasn't the answer I was expecting. Um, All right. Okay. Let's see. So at this point, I'm actually just trying to throw you a (laughs) curveball. (laughs) <laughs>
1: I appreciate that. That's fun.
0: Um, okay, so you've got you, – you've taken a very little L libertarian socialist stance on – I mean you seem to be very ideologically consistent here. Who is paying your bills?
1: <laughs> 13,000 yeah. Americans from every one of the 50 states. We have
0: U.S. expat
1: uh, citizen supporters who live abroad now. So literally the sun never sets on our support base. And unlike the British empire, which colonized the land of where my forebears came, I didn't have to fire a shot to do it or enslave anyone or, you know, move anybody around the world. Uh, I'm I'm very grateful for the support of, of all the people that have stepped forward. I, 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 often say to people, I'm just a schmo with a pen, you know, and I don't have a family legacy. I'm an immigrant. My family lost our house when I was 16. I got my undergrad degree going to night school for 10 years I'm just a schmo, but what's put me in a position to challenge the most powerful corporate politician on the planet is precisely the backing of thousands of my neighbors, uh, not just in San Francisco, but far beyond. And I'm I'm so grateful for that help. Um, you know, we saw the impact of it last week in particular. So we, we ended up raising but for the primary cycle, which we just took second place in, half a million dollars. And, you know, that's the uh, you know, it's the strongest challenge that Pelosi's ever faced. And we're just getting started. We have another eight months to go. It's the beginning of a new cycle. Uh, we're starting with some resources on hand and a fully professionalized, developed campaign team, hundreds of volunteers. We're going to be hitting the ground running in the next several months and making the case for why we need these paradigm shifting policies to meet the needs of the future, like Medicare for all and paid sick leave to keep and, you know, stopping ICE from seizing immigrants when they go to the hospital or the courthouse to make sure that we can deal with this pandemic threat uh, sensibly instead of irrationally and maniacally in the way that our criminal president would prefer. Uh, You know, ICE has declared basically a crackdown on sanctuary cities across the country, including San Francisco. I was at a press conference um, uh, at which members of our public defender's office were speaking just yesterday at the Hall of Justice, defending civil rights, defending immigrant rights, and defending our city's sovereignty. And and commitments in the face of an authoritarian federal crackdown, that synthesis I would describe of libertarian principles as it relates to the state and socialist policies as it relates to the expansion of human rights to encompass our human needs. You know, we don't have a lot of affirmative uh, rights. We have negative rights, you know, rights to theoretically be free from, for instance, government surveillance, which is ubiquitous, rights to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, which happen all the time. Rights to due process is, an, is a thin affirmative commitment because we do have minimal due process protections that we do commit to. But I want to see us commit to rights to housing and health care and food and education. Uh, Those are rights that not only benefit the individual who receives them, but they benefit our civilization. We have an opportunity at the moment. I think a lot of Americans are waking up to how bad life in the United States can be if you're not a billionaire Uh, and that that we're not alone in the struggles that we share. And if we're able to get on the other side of this, if we can throw off the yoke of the bipartisan corporate rule that has constrained our responses to our social crises if we can ensure that everybody has an opportunity in the new economy, if we can ensure that everybody can get to a doctor, if we can ensure that your kids and your grandkids can survive, we have the opportunity, I think, not only to meet the crises of this moment, but to create a whole new spectrum of opportunities for the future. And and I see that promise. I'm really excited by it. I, that's the socialist thing that inspires me at the same time as the dystopia and the authoritarianism that looms also terrifies me. <laughs> really both of those strands that are that are fueling our campaign and and my run to replace Nancy.
0: So here's a question I ask pretty much everybody that comes on the show. What is uh, something that anybody who watches this, what is something that they can do to better their community? They can act on their own. What is one way right now? Tell us how to change the world.
1: Thank you so much for asking that because that's where the action is actually at. Step one is proactively curate your news sources Your listeners are probably doing that already because they're listening to you and not the lies that they're going to hear on Fox News or MSNBC. Step two is meet your neighbors. We can develop concerns in isolation, but it's only when we organize and we connect that we can do anything about it. Individual solutions to grand problems are ultimately and necessarily infinitesimal. But when you meet your neighbors and you talk about your shared concerns, and this is the key, when you come up with plans to do something together, Whatever it is, I don't even care what it is. You can write letters to some official. You can stand on a street corner with some signs. You can host a teach-in at the community center or the library. You can go to the nearest college and try to find some students who are organizing around whatever you care about and connect with them. You can take a trip to your state capitol and lobby your state officials. There's so many ways to get involved. And it, I, again, I don't even think it matters how. I mean, I, I just think what matters most is that people do the thing, whatever the thing looks like to you. Uh, I've seen people use all kinds of different shared as platforms for organizing some of my earliest political acts were organizing collectives of politicized artists, hip hop artists, MC spoken word uh, artists, comedians. So there's three different groups, uh, Stanford spoken word collective in Palo Alto, the D.C. guerrilla poetry insurgency and uh, uh, an outdoor poetry convergence that happened every week. A week in san francisco for the last 17 years and i've had a chance in pulling each of them together they're all still active and you know together they've churned out probably at this point thousands of artists you know, visionaries who are in their own ways in small rooms and big rooms on street corners on train platforms you know they're they're polemically making the case in public and and for me that was about poetry and creative writing as a vehicle to express a political sensibility and that and that started each of those collectives just start would started with groups of poets sharing their frustrations sharing their poetry and coming up with a plan for how to share and promote it so
0: we've got curate the news so educate get together with your neighbors organize and then do the thing agitate i, I like it
1: i like <laughs> the thing to agitate towards a strategic goal general strike People ask me, what happens if Trump steals the election? And that's a real question. We can't take for granted that he will leave the White House if he's beaten in the election. And and at that point, all bets are off. If we, the people, are not ready to respond by reclaiming our sovereignty, the only way we can do that is mass work stoppage. And that takes organizing. You have to know your neighbors in order to pull that off. The Montgomery bus boycott wasn't just a boycott. People self organized rides. They still got to work. They just found other ways to get there. Communities came together to provide alternatives to the institutional services. And a mass workshop is, you know, communities and families, you're still going to need to eat. So, like figuring out how to do that, even if people aren't working for a while, that's almost like the million dollar question. And until we gain the capacity to assert ourselves collectively, I fear that we could continue to be preyed upon by institutions that have. The opportunity to turn a deaf ear to us and a blind eye to our concerns. And, and I'm fighting in the electoral arena because I still have faith in the democratic process. And I think if enough of us engage, we can flip some of these seats and change the policies. At the end of the day, as I mentioned before, there are plenty of holes in the bucket of our democracy. And, at the, and it might take steps beyond the democratic levers to defend it. And I think a general strike is the strongest tool in the box that we the people have.
0: Okay. All right. Plug your site again. You gave everybody the information they need because I, I got a feeling you, you won some hearts and minds tonight. <laughs> Thank you. Both.
1: Folks can find us online at Shahidforchange.us. for change. That's S H a H I D for change. Uh, we're also on all of the social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Shahid for change.
0: All right. Okay, guys. So that's going to wrap up the interview for tonight. Uh, It's just a thought, and we'll see you uh, probably tomorrow. Thanks a lot.